if you would, take out your Bibles with me, and let's open them up to the book of Romans and chapter 12. The book of Romans and chapter 12. As you're turning there, let me uh, say a special word of greeting to uh, visitors that we have with us this morning. Uh, we're very glad that you are here, and uh, you are welcome anytime, and we certainly hope and pray that uh, you are blessed by your time with us this morning. And let me also say, if you're here this morning and, and you don't have a Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. Uh, we have some provided for you in the seats in front of you, and we encourage you to grab one of those. Uh, you can use that this morning. You'll find our text on page 947 uh, in those Bibles. And of course, if you don't have a Bible that you can easily read at home, take that one with you as, as our gift to you. You're, you're welcome, welcome to it. When I was a kid... Uh, one of my favorite movies was called Short Circuit. Um, this was a movie from 1986 about a group of robots. I was, I was a geeky kid. Uh, a group of robots that were made for, for military purposes. However, one of these robots, uh, number five, gets struck by lightning. And in the movies, all kinds of things happen when they get struck by lightning. Uh, this robot suddenly starts acting differently than all the others. He escapes his compound, and when he, has, uh, when he is finally found, this robot tries to convince the people around him that he is no longer just a robot. Uh, something miraculous happened when he was struck by lightning. He's now alive. Uh, number five is now alive. In one scene, the main characters decide that the real proof of life is a sense of humor. Uh, machines don't laugh unless they're programmed to do so. And so if they can tell a joke and number five finds it funny and spontaneously laughs, well, that will prove that he is truly alive and they do the test and it takes a while and he laughs and he proves that he is well the 1980s were a time when people were seriously beginning to ask this kind of question what makes something truly alive as computers have taken a more prominent role in our lives there have been lots of stories written about Artificial intelligence taking over the world, uh, computers becoming sentient, machines becoming living beings. And people have asked, what are the distinguishing characteristics of true life? Lists have been made. A quick Google search revealed a list declaring these to be the seven characteristics of life. Responsiveness to the environment. Growth and change, the ability to reproduce, the ability to metabolize and breathe, stability, being made of cells, and passing on traits to offspring. So that is Google's list of what qualifies something as a living being. I want to bring you a slightly different question this morning, what would you say are the distinguishing characteristics of Christian life? 
what are the distinguishing characteristics of Christian life? So if, if you were to put together a list of the essential marks of someone who has been born again by the Spirit of God, they've been raised from spiritual deadness to spiritual life, what marks would you put on that list? Uh, to put it another way, what characteristics can we point to that distinguish the Christian from other living beings in this world? Romans 12 verse 1, which we've already looked at in detail, gave us an answer. Uh, look at verse 1 again. Let's read Romans 12 verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here we see the root of Christian living, the mercies of God. A Christian is a saved person, a redeemed person, a person made new and alive by God's grace. All Christian living comes from the mercies of God. Here we see the aim of Christian living, spiritual worship. The true Christian lives to show the glory and the worth of God. Christians live for his name, his renown, his praise. God is at the center of the Christian's life. He is the aim of all their ambitions. God is everything to the Christian. What is the aim of his or her life? Spiritual worship. Here we see the nature of Christian living. Christians present their bodies as living sacrifices. That is, the Christian life is a life of daily giving ourselves to God all that we are. From my head to my toes, my thoughts, my emotions, my will, as well as all that I own and possess, we strive to bring every aspect of our lives into devotion to Him. And in Romans 12:1, we see the attributes of Christian living. We are living sacrifices. That is, we've been made alive by the Spirit of God. And we are seeking to offer ourselves to God as sacrifices that are holy and acceptable. We want to be different from the rest of the world. We want to be set apart for God's service. There were lots of lamps in Israel. But then there were the holy lamps that were set apart for God. There were many tables in Israel, but then there was the one holy table set apart for God in the temple. So also, there are lots of people in this world. But we're to be holy, set apart for special service to God. We're to be different from others in this world, marked by our purity, our integrity, our moral cleanliness. We will not be perfect in this life, but Christians are to be marked by a striving for holiness, a striving to be full of love and honesty and sincerity, 
This is Christian living. Living in God's mercies, we seek to live holy lives unto God. And that's our worship. And that's what the Christian life is all about. And so now, as we come to verse 2, Paul gets a little more practical. How do we do that? That is, how do we live a holy life to God? In our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, our community groups, our neighborhoods. How practically can I live as a holy person? And Paul gives us a negative answer and a positive answer. That is, he tells us something we must not do. And then he tells us something that we must do. So look at it in verse 2. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What must we not do? Be conformed to this world. What must we do? Be transformed by the renewal of our mind. This morning, we are going to focus on that first statement, the negative side. The assumption is that you want to live a life that honors God, a life of worship. The assumption is that you want to present your whole self to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. And if you're a Christian, that's in your heart. And if I may be blunt for a moment, if that's not in your heart... You're not a Christian. There's no such thing as a lover of Jesus, of one who has found faith in Christ and been made alive spiritually, who doesn't care about holiness. There's no such thing. At your baptism, dear Christian, you made a public statement that your life was now going to be lived for God. This is where it must begin. Do not be conformed to this world. So we're going to unpack that command with four questions. Here we go. Number one, what is this world? That is, Paul says we're not to be conformed to this world, but we have to know what he's talking about if we're going to make sure that we don't conform to it. So what is this world? world. And so I'm just going to fly through four points here to help you understand what he means by that that phrase, this world. So number one, this world is the sin-dominated old creation. The sin-dominated old creation. So think with me for a moment. The word that Paul actually uses in the Greek is the word age. He uses it over and over and over again in his letters. It's one of Paul's favorite words. And he uses it to refer to the period of time since the fall of man all the way to the second coming of Jesus in which sin pervades humanity and sin pervades creation. You do know that there's another age coming, right? There's there's this age And then there's the age to come. And if you're a Christian, you're longing for the age to come. But what he's saying here is don't be conformed to this age. 
Don't be conformed to this world as it is now. After the day of judgment, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new age, a new creation in which God will dwell with man in a holiness and perfection. That will be a world of endless joy. But this world isn't that world. And I don't have to tell you that. You know it. This world isn't that world. This world is the fallen world, the sin-dominated old creation under the influence of Satan characterized by human pride. It's a world that has gone rogue. It is a realm of rebellion. It is a kingdom of confusion. It is a domain of darkness. It is this world. Second point about this, Christians' souls are part of the new creation. That is, Christian souls are really an amazing thing in this world. Because when the Spirit of God comes upon someone through the message of the gospel and causes them to be born again, they become a new creation person. Their soul becomes a new creation soul. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the the old has passed away and the new has come. Here's what you are you weird thing called a Christian. You are a new creation soul living in an old creation body. We could even say you are a new age soul, but that would be twisted because new age means all kinds of things today. But the age to come, your soul has been made part of that age to come, but that soul is living in this body that's still this age, affected by the fall and and the curse. The Christian is a little bit of heaven on earth. That is, fundamentally, at root, the rest of humanity is still at enmity with God, not wanting to acknowledge God, not wanting to honor God. But we have been foundationally changed. I hope this has happened for you. That at your very core, there is now a peace with God. A love for God. A desire to glorify God. And that is a radical change. And moreover, as a new creation person, you no longer really belong here. The new creation uh, is your home. It's the place where you belong, not here. We're just passing through this world. We are pilgrims in this world. Third point. Christians still have indwelling sin and old creation bodies. So even though our souls have been made new, it's not like they're entirely free of sin. Our souls have been changed at the root. Our souls have been changed at the core, but that hasn't yet affected all that we are. Indwelling sin remains in us. There is still something in every Christian that wants to pull us back into our former slavery to sin. So listen to how Charles Spurgeon talked about this. Spurgeon said, Now I hold that there is in every Christian two natures, as distinct as were the two natures of the God-man, Christ Jesus. There is one nature in a Christian which cannot sin because it is born of God. It is of a spiritual nature, 
It comes directly from heaven, as pure and as perfect as God himself, who is the author of it. But there is also in man that ancient nature, which by the fall of Adam hath altogether become vile, corrupt, sinful, and devilish. There remains in the hearts of the Christian a nature which cannot do that which is right any more than it could before regeneration, and which is as evil as it was before the new birth. As sinful and as hostile to God's laws as ever it was. A nature which, as I said before, is curbed and kept under by the new nature in a great measure. But which is not removed and never will be until this tabernacle of our flesh is broken down. And we soar into that land in which there shall never enter anything that defiles. Now Herman, there is mystery here. But we can say this much about the essence of indwelling sin. It is a powerful force within us, remaining from before our conversion, that compels us to do the opposite of the will of God. Here's what I'm trying to help you understand. There is still something of this world in you. When Paul talks about don't be conformed to this world, he, just doesn't, he doesn't just mean all that stuff that's out there. There is still something of this world in the Christian. You must recognize that there is still something that resonates with ungodly and twisted ideas, man-centered desires, self-serving designs inside of us. Do you own that? Do you recognize that, dear Christian? Indwelling sin has an ally. Your physical body. Because your body is still part of this fallen world affected by sin. And indwelling sin will use your body to try and tempt you back into the patterns of this world. And so you may be trying to fight some sin in your life. But your body still has impulses towards that sin. You may be trying to overcome an addiction to fast food. You realize this has become sinful. I am addicted to fast food. And yet every time you drive by Bojangles, your mouth starts watering. It's your body working against you. It's your body as an ally of indwelling sin, of of that part of the world that is in you. Remember Romans 7 and how Paul described the struggle of the Christian. Paul said, I I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He said, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Fundamentally, at the core of his soul, Paul wants to do what is right. He's been born again. He wants to live a life that honors God and is holy. But something keeps messing him up. Something keeps thwarting his plans. What is it? He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, meaning his body parts, another law waging war against the law of my mind. Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here is the explanation for why we who are Christians still struggle so much with sin in this life. Indwelling sin remains in us 
and it works through our old creation bodies to lead us into sin. And then our fourth point here, Christians are still in the world and we're influenced by the world. Inwardly and outwardly, this old creation world still has a pull on us. This may not be our home, but this is where we live. Worldliness, the the sinful, twisted thoughts, attitudes, words, and behaviors of this world, it's in the air we breathe. And even if you went to a monastery and you became a monk, or ladies, if you went to a nunnery and became a nun, and you tried to shut yourself off from the world, and you said, I don't want to be affected by the world, I'm going to shut myself off, guess what? That part of the world that's still in you, your indwelling sin, your old creation body, it's still right there with you and it is well trained in the world with plenty of temptations towards selfishness and pride and greed and lust to keep you struggling for the rest of your life. The simple truth is this. You cannot escape the influence of this world until you die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And when you realize that, and you come to grips with that, suddenly Romans 12 verse 1 seems a lot more difficult. We are supposed to be the people presenting our bodies to God as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable. We are to be living holy lives unto God, but our situation is one in which we are being constantly tempted, constantly pulled outwardly, inwardly to sin against God. We are fish in a fast-flowing river, and the river is pushing us in the wrong direction. And there are other fish, millions of them, and their momentum is pushing us in the wrong direction. And even our own skin is pushing us in the wrong direction. What do we do? Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. So here's our second question. What does this command not mean? I want to tell you what it doesn't mean before I tell you what it means. Okay, so what does this command not mean? I want to be clear on what Paul is not saying because this verse could be used out of context in a very bad way. This command does not mean that we should never conform to the customs and culture of those around us. It does not mean that we should never conform to the customs and culture of those around us. As long as your attire is modest... It is fine to dress the way other people in our culture dress. That is, you can still wear blue jeans while other people wear blue jeans. And you can still wear khaki pants while other people wear khaki pants. Christians don't have to go and create their own special different form of Christian clothing. Okay? Uh, As long as you're not saying wicked things, as long as you're not speaking in a wicked way, It is perfectly fine to use the language and the lingo and the vocabulary of the culture in which God has placed you. We don't have to create our own language as Christians to avoid being like the world. You can eat what other people eat. 
You can play the same sports as other people. You can enjoy the same hobbies. In fact, if we are to be salt and light in this world and reach people for Jesus, there is an extent to which we must be like the world in some of these ways. The same Paul who says, do not be conformed to this world, says in 1 Corinthians 9, to the weak I become weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. In other words, there is a kind of conformity that is absolutely appropriate. There is a kind of conformity that is necessary if you're going to relate to other people. When Paul ate with the Jews, he did not eat the barbecue because he knew that eating pork would put an obstacle to them in hearing his gospel. He conformed to those dietary laws. When Paul ate with Gentiles, he ate the barbecue with them. He conformed because he didn't want to put a needless obstacle before them, thinking that his gospel was a rule, a gospel of rules and regulations. As long as it did not require him to sin against God, Paul would conform. There is a kind of conformity that's right. And I trust that's clear. Okay, so with that out of the way, number three, what does Paul mean when he says, do not be conformed to this world? And put simply, Paul is calling us to resist the patterns of sinful living that mark this age. He is calling us to resist the patterns of sinful living that mark this age in which we live. It begins with your thinking and your worldview. This world has produced thousands of worldviews, thousands of ways to have an outlook on life that try and do away with the true God. Rebellion in the mind and the outlook of man is everywhere. People want to adopt ideas and opinions that make it okay to sin. We cannot conform to the world's way of thinking. Our ideas must be God's ideas. They must be conformed to the truth. So the world thinks man is not sinful. We're basically all good at heart. Dear Christian, do not be conformed to the world's thinking. The world thinks this life is the life that matters. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Live for today. Dear Christian, do not be conformed to this world's way of thinking. The world says, he who has the most stuff has the best life. Dear Christian, do not be conformed to this world's way of thinking. The world says, all that matters in religion is that a person finds what makes them happy. Mount Hermon, do not be conformed to this world's way of thinking. And our thinking on God, man, this world, morality, and everything else, we must take every thought captive to Christ. 
We must resist every way of thinking that would lead us away from God. And then there's our attitude. Are your attitudes conforming to the attitudes of this world? So often the world has affected our attitude and we don't even realize it. We find ourselves taking sin lightly because the world does. We think it's right for us to get offended over the smallest things because that's what the world does. We start making mountains out of molehills and molehills out of mountains because we've adopted the world's mixed up attitudes about what really matters. Things that grieve the heart of God begin not to grieve us hardly at all. Meanwhile, we get all worked up over things that are eternally irrelevant. God is calling us in this verse not to be conformed to the world's way of thinking and the world's attitudes, the world's priorities, the world's values. What about our speech? Of course, we're to use the same basic language and vocabulary as the culture that we live in, but we're still not to speak in exactly the same way. The world's speech is tainted by hate and spite and bitterness and pride. The world's speech seems to to boast much in man while it belittles God. The world's speech lies and deceives and provokes violence and division. We are to use the same vocabulary, but we're to use those, those same words in a different way with a different purpose. There is not to be any hate or pride or dishonesty in the way a Christian speaks. But we are rather to give grace to all who hear. We are to speak a word in season. We're not to be conformed to this world in our behavior. That is, all of our deeds are to be done with different motives than the world. With a different aim and marked by godly characteristics. Moreover, there are many deeds in this world that we simply must put away. Just as there are many deeds that this world rejects that we must do. The world has little regard for the Bible and spends tons of time in mindless entertainment. Are you being conformed to the world in that way? If you were to look back over the last week, the last month, the last year... And add up the number of hours spent thinking upon Scripture, studying Scripture, putting your, your uh, feasting on the Word of God, and then set that aside, hours of mindless entertainment. Have you conformed to the world in that? Most people only pray when they're really in trouble, and the rest of the time they utterly ignore God. Mount Hermon, do not be conformed to this world. The world treats Sunday as play day, fishing day, catch up on housework day, anything but the Lord's day. Do not be conformed to this world. Uh, Frankly, most of the world around you is caught up in addictions of various kinds, serving the gods of lust or gluttony or greed or ambition, hearts enslaved to pornography or bad eating or constant shopping or being workaholics. All around us people are in chains to gods that have won their hearts and then taken them captive. And Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Let me ask you, by the evidence of your life, would your next door neighbor say that you are a Christian? 
Is it obvious by the way you live that you are a foreigner in these parts? Yes, your life looks the same as others in some ways. You you still work a job, maybe have a family, you wear regular clothing, you, you do things that other people do. But are your values so different, your priorities so different, your hope in Christ making you so different? It's obvious to everyone. You march to the beat of a different drum. Is your life a life of worship towards God that's taking you right through this world and into the next? Final question, number four. What are some helps for actually obeying this command? What are some helps for obeying this command to not be conformed? One we'll see next time. It's the positive side. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But related to that, let me give you three practical helps. Number one, cultivate a godly independence from this world. Cultivate a godly independence from this world. To be as blunt as I can, you will never obey Romans 12 2 if you still need the world's approval and the world's affection. If your identity and your confidence and your security is caught up, and whether people around you approve you, affirm you, accept you, there is no way you will be able to follow Jesus in keeping this command. You were not made to serve two masters, and you cannot serve two masters. Paul was willing to conform to people's customs in order to better love them and point them to Jesus. But at the end of the day, Paul did not live for their approval. In fact, Paul makes a very strong statement in Galatians 1 verse 10. Listen to this. Paul says, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Those two things cannot go together. Paul says, Before I was saved, I was living for the approval of men. But he says, now I am no longer doing that because you cannot both please men and serve Christ. To serve Jesus, you must do what he calls you to do even when the people around you disapprove. And in this world, people will often disapprove of the very ways of thinking, speaking, and acting that your Savior has commanded. And so I ask you this question. Which do you feel most strongly in your heart? The need to follow Jesus wherever he leads or the need to be affirmed or accepted by other people? Ed Welch taught me a principle that I think is both biblical and life-changing. What you need will control you. What you need will control you. If you need the approval of others, they will be your master. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. To live the Christian life, we must find all of our peace, security, and confidence in Christ. We are affirmed by God in Christ. 
We are approved by God in Christ. We are accepted by God in Christ. Through Jesus, we have all that we need so that when God is for us, who can be against us? And so in those gospel realities, we are able to cultivate a godly independence from this world. You can serve the people of this world. You can reach the lost of this world by not needing their approval so much. And if you need their approval, you will be paralyzed and won't do the very things this world so desperately needs you to do. So what is your identity? Can you say most fundamentally, I am a sinner saved by grace. I am loved, sustained, and upheld by the mighty God. Number two, cultivate a godly self-control for Jesus' sake. A godly self-control. Let's just be honest. The fish that can't control his own body is going to go wherever the river takes it. So also, if you have not taken control of your body for Jesus' sake, then indwelling sin will use it to do great harm to your life and to your witness. When the rest of the world says it's fine to listen to this or to watch that or to be here or to do that, you must have enough self-control over your ears, your eyes, your hands, your feet to resist and to get yourself in a different situation. We need to keep beating this drum over and over. If we are going to honor God with our lives and obey Him, we have to bring our bodies into submission. We must learn the art of self-denial. We must learn what it is to say no to ourselves so that we can say yes to Christ. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If you can't keep a part of your body from getting you into sin, Jesus says you'd be better off to cut it off than to let it send you to hell. Certainly it's hyperbole, but that is how important self-control is. Heaven and hell are at stake. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul makes a statement that shows that even he knew that if he didn't control his body, he could ultimately prove to be an unbeliever and fall away from Christ. Yes, even the Apostle Paul knew that this was possible for him. He said, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners race, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating into the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself myself should be disqualified. And I simply say, if that's something the Apostle Paul needed, how much more Justin, how much more us in this room to learn what it is to discipline ourselves Romans 6, 12 through 13, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
The message there is that your body is like a wild bronco and it will wreak havoc on you and on others if it remains out of control. But if you can bridle that horse, if you can saddle that horse, if you can teach it to obey, oh, how it can be used to do great things for God. You cannot present your body as a living sacrifice to God if you don't have control over it. It's hardest at first. Teaching the bronco to obey is hardest in the first days. And so you have to say no to your stomach and mean no. You have to say no to your eyes and you have to mean no. And you purposefully submit your body to the service of God. I know I've gone kind of long. Last one, we're almost done. Literally like four sentences left, okay? Cultivate a biblical understanding of sin's end cultivate a biblical understanding of sin's end you want something that will help you fight against this river that's pushing you that way see where the river's going see where the final destination is that this world is headed to the wages of sin is death this world is on a headlong rush towards a cliff that leads to hell when you remember the dreadful end that this world is heading to, it sobers us up. It reminds us why we need to get diligent. We need to get passionate about pursuing holiness. We do not want to go that way. We are to walk in a different direction. The way of Christ. And so friends, let us embrace the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And in that mercy... Let us not be conformed to this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.